Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, and this is Last Week in the Church. Sorry we missed you on Friday. I was, as we say in the business, unavoidably detained. But here we are in full living color uh, on a Monday, and this is what's on the menu. A shabby Vatican exit. An aide to Benedict XVI says that the Pope Emeritus is misunderstood. And three notable losses in recent days. Father Hans Kung, the enfant terrible of Catholic theology in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, is dead at 93. Australian Cardinal Edward Cassidy, perhaps the consummate churchman of his generation, is dead in his native land at the age of 96. Uh, and finally, uh, a, an Italian pastor you've never heard of uh, has passed away at the age of 63, but you need to hear his story. That is what's waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. All right, uh, I want to remind you that you can find full coverage of all the stories we're going to talk about today on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. Cruxnow.com, your one stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. Uh, if you can find it in your heart and your pocketbook to help us out, we are conducting our online fundraising drive. Uh, the apple of our eye uh, is somebody willing to make a small but stable monthly commitment to Crux. That gives us the ability to make plans. Uh, we're not looking for very much. Maybe what you would spend this month on, I don't know, streaming a movie from Amazon Prime or ordering something into the house from Uber Eats, whatever it is. Uh, but whatever you can do, we would deeply appreciate it. Also want to remind you that if you enjoy this show, uh, please give us a like, give us a thumbs up, go on the social media platform of your choice and spread the word. All right, we begin this week with a shabby Vatican exit. Now, as you well know, sometimes big pictures are painted from small brushstrokes. Uh, and this is really one of those small brushstrokes. It's a, it's a development that in itself is essentially meaningless. Uh, it concerns American Monsignor uh, Robert Oliver, known to all of us as Bob, Father Bob, uh, who has left uh, as the secretary, that's the, the kind of chief of staff, for the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors. That's the body created by Pope Francis in 2013 to be kind of his tip of the spear for reform on child sexual abuse in the church, kind of his chief sounding board advisory body. Uh, from the beginning, Monsignor Oliver has been the guy making the trains run on time. Recently, and he'd done that for almost eight years. Prior to that, he'd put in two, another two years here in Rome in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. It was recently decided uh, that his Rome run uh, has come to an end, uh, and he's going to go back to the Archdiocese of Boston, which is where he's from, where he served Cardinal Sean O'Malley before he came over to Rome, and where he now returns to serve Cardinal Sean O'Malley. Now look, you know, typically a five-year run around here is considered normal, so almost a decade is actually extra time. Uh, and you know, however good somebody may be at their job, uh, there's a natural tendency to get stale after a while, so the theory is you want to inject fresh blood. So there is nothing particularly remarkable about the fact that Monsignor Oliver is going home. Uh, nor is he upset about it. Uh, he has taken this with good humor. 
Uh, and it's, it's not as if his career is over. Uh, he is a smart, talented, driven, wonderful guy uh, who is going to continue to make a, a major contribution to the church wherever he is. In fact, to be quite honest with you, you can make a pretty good argument that a lot of the time there is a direct relationship between how much good you can do in the Catholic Church and how far away you are from Rome. So quite possibly, this may free up Monsignor Oliver to do great good that we can't presently anticipate. Now, the only thing worthy of note about this uh, is how Monsignor Oliver's exit was handled. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, he didn't know he was being replaced. Uh, he had gone back to the States for what he assumed was just a kind of short check-in visit. Uh, he had dropped down to D.C. from Boston to see a couple people, was sitting in an airport in Washington waiting to board his plane to Boston. Uh, when his phone blew up with calls from reporters wanting to know why his name wasn't on a list of people uh, issued by the Vatican that day reappointed to the Commission for Minors. Uh, he didn't know. Uh, so he finally got a hold of Cardinal O'Malley, uh, who confirmed, uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, we made the decision that you're coming back, but like your bosses in the Vatican didn't tell you this? They, they didn't give you a heads up? Uh, in fact, no, nobody gave him a heads up. Uh, and so he was blindsided. Now, look, I mean, at one level, you can say this is just the Vatican for you, right? I mean, in the Vatican, nobody communicates with anyone. Nobody ever says thank you. Why should Bob Oliver be any different? But here's the thing. For the last 10 years, loyally, without complaint, with dedication, and with the heart of a true pastor, Monsignor Robert Oliver did what is arguably the toughest, most gut-wrenching job the Catholic Church has to offer. Over and over and over again, he said in living rooms, with survivors of child sexual abuse. He said in conference rooms, he took their phone calls, he took their emails, he held their hand, he counseled them, he opened his heart to them as they opened their hearts to him. And he tried by his lights to bring a little bit of healing and a little bit of God's mercy and compassion to some of the most scarred people the Catholic Church has ever generated. Now, on the way out, if you can't show that kind of guy a little love, if you can't at least give him a heads up that the end has come and maybe say thank you, something is profoundly wrong. And what this illustrates is a much deeper reality about the internal climate of the Vatican, which is that from the point of view of the mid and lower level workers in the Vatican, this is not a community in which people are called to flourish. This is a factory in which people are treated as disposable cogs in a machine. And if you want a real Vatican reform, maybe you would want to start there. And the fact that this kind of thing could still happen in April 2021, eight years into an alleged Vatican reform probably speaks far more than was intended about the actual state of that reform. All right, next up, 
Uh, German Archbishop Georg Ganswein, uh, who is the closest aide to Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI and has been for a long time, recently gave an interview to a Spanish news outlet in which he said it is inappropriate to rank popes. He's referring to polls that typically show that John Paul and Francis have higher approval numbers than his own boss, Benedict XVI. Uh, and he also said that Benedict XVI has been badly misunderstood, not only by his enemies, but also by his friends, who kind of want to style him, of course, uh, as the chaplain of the opposition to Pope Francis. Uh, and Gainswine is insisting that that's just flat not true and not fair. And of course it isn't. Uh, look, uh, here's the thing. Uh, I have been a journalist man and boy now, uh, covering the Catholic Church and the wider world for you know, going on 25 years, uh, I've met, interviewed, written about, talked about a slew of public figures. I can tell you this, there has never been a public figure during my career where there is a bigger gap between the public image and the private reality than with Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. In, in the court of public opinion, right, uh, he is Herr Panzer Cardinal. He is the German shepherd. He's the Darth Vader of the Catholic Church, the great Dr. No. You know, when he ran uh, the Vatican's doctrinal office, people would hear the imperial death march from Star Wars echoing in their heads when he walked into a room. In person, however, I will tell you this, you have never met a nicer guy. Uh, I have never met anyone uh, who is gentler, kinder, more solicitous, humbler, uh, more genuinely interested in you when you're standing in front of him uh, than Pope Benedict XVI. And I think we saw this during his eight years as Pope because he didn't go looking to whack people around the head and shoulders. As Pope, he tried to find ways to say yes that, rather than no. That's the real man. Uh, and if that's what you mean by being misunderstood, then I think we all have to give uh, Archbishop Gainswine a grade of A plus uh, in this most recent interview. Whatever you want to make about the tensions in terms of vision, agenda, outlook between sort of the, the church that is more enthusiastic about Benedict and the church that is more enthusiastic about Francis, at a human level, this is a profoundly kind and Christian man. Uh, and that's how he deserves to be looked upon. And when the day comes, that's how he deserves to be remembered, not as the captain of some kind of practice squad for the other team. Uh, all right, uh, three notable losses this week. We begin with Father Hans Kung. Uh, now, Kung, uh, born in Switzerland, but spent most of his career in Germany, uh, he was the wunderkind uh, of the Catholic theological scene in the 1960s. Uh, in 1962, he published a book uh, in English. It was translated as Church Reform uh, and Reunion uh, that many people to this day credit with being the blueprint for the closing sessions of Vatican II, basically providing the council with its to-do list. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues, Peter Hebblethwaite, once wrote that no Catholic theologian ever had a greater impact on the church in his time than Hans Kung during the era of the council. Uh, in the years after the council, Kung became kind of the intellectual leader of the progressive wing of the church uh, that wanted to push for ever bolder, ever more sweeping reforms in the spirit of Vatican II. 
Uh, and of course, as well known, there was another wing of the church led by several individuals, but among them, another young German theologian by the name of Joseph Ratzinger, uh, that was concerned that we were throwing the baby out with the bathwater uh, and began to want to draw certain lines in the sand in terms of doctrine and practice. Uh, as time went on, Kung became an ever more embittered critic uh, of Catholic officialdom. Uh, at one stage, she openly declared that the Pope is not infallible, that the dogma of infallibility was a mistake. Uh, at another stage, she compared the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith to the KGB. Uh, he also had very harsh words uh, about his erstwhile colleague, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, suggesting that Ratzinger uh, had come down with scarlet fever uh, as a young man and had sold out his theological convictions for power. All of this was said openly and repeatedly. The irony is Kung and Ratzinger were actually at one point extraordinarily close when they were both on the theology faculty in Tübingen in Germany uh, in the 1960s. They had what the Germans call a Standtisch, <laughs> that is a standing table uh, at a local restaurant where they had dinner together every Thursday night. They were kind of a study in contrast. You know, Kung was this flamboyant guy zipping around Tübingen in his Alfa Romeo, wearing his expensive cologne and his tailored suits. Ratzinger was this egghead, uh, you know, puttering around on a bicycle, wearing his professor's beret. But nevertheless, they were fast friends. Obviously, competing in differing visions of the church caused them to drift apart, and at least in Kung's case, to become fairly bitter about it. Uh, happy footnote to this story is that after uh, Joseph Ratzinger was elected as Benedict XVI, one of his first acts was to invite his old friend Hans Kung uh, to visit him uh, in the Vatican. The two spent uh, a happy afternoon together in Castel Gandolfo, uh, sort of strolling down memory lane. Uh, afterwards, Kung told reporters, look, uh, we don't agree on everything. Uh, we, in some ways, we have different visions, different theological outlooks. But what we've realized is that what unites us as priests and as Christians is far more profound and far more important. I, and I don't know about you, but I, I just think that is a terrific story. Uh, Hans Kung was a lightning rod to his fans. He was the Catholic Solskjaer the guy speaking truth to power from the ecclesiastical gulag. Uh, to his critics, he was the ecclesiastical Judas, uh, a guy who sold out the faith for 40 pieces of pop culture silver. Uh, and there are all sorts of ranges of opinion in between, but I will tell you this. Some of Hans Kung's works remain uh, among the most provocative and original contributions to Catholic theology in his time. Uh, I think he will be read well, be, well after his death. Uh, few theologians ever had the impact uh, on the church in their era that he did. Uh, he, he, was, he was an interesting cat. He was an original figure. He will be missed. Take him for all in all. We shall not look upon his like again. So then, uh, just shortly after the loss of Hans Kung, uh, we registered the loss of another ecclesiastical lion uh, in the form of Australian Cardinal Edward Cassidy, uh, who died uh, in his native Australia at the age of 96. 
Uh, Cassidy had come to Rome in the 1950s, uh, was groomed for a diplomatic career from the very beginning. He, he was another wunderkind, uh, another shooting star uh, in the church at his time. He had a series of progressively more important uh, diplomatic appointments around the world on behalf of the Vatican and the papacy. Uh, at one point, uh, he was actually uh, the number two official uh, in the Vatican Embassy uh, in the United States uh, at a time before the Vatican and the United States had full diplomatic relations. Then, uh, in 1988, Cassidy was brought back to Rome, <coughs> where he was named by Pope John Paul II, now St. John Paul, the sustituto, uh, or the substitute, uh, in the Secretary of State. Now, here's the thing. It is impossible to overstate how important the job of the substitute, the sustituto, is in the Vatican system. He is essentially the Pope's chief of staff. He's the guy who makes the Vatican's trains run on time. So, from the, you know, President of France, who's coming in to visit the Pope today and briefing the Pope to make sure he's ready, to who's getting appointed nuncio uh, in, uh, you know, in, in Bulgaria to, to face the hot spot there, to who's gonna actually make sure that the Vatican deficit gets corrected <clears throat> before the place goes broke. All of those things and more uh, are the sustituto's job. From time immemorial, it had been assumed that the Sustituto had to be an Italian because uh, the Vatican, and above all, the Secretary of State, is a quintessentially Italian shop. Now, the substitute before Cassidy technically had been non-Italian. It was Edgar uh, Samalo. Uh, sorry, I'm blanking. Samalo, sorry. Uh, Martinez Samalo is blanking on his name for a moment. Uh, who was a Spaniard, however, therefore Mediterranean and, and basically part of the same culture. Cassidy uh, was the first non-Mediterranean, the first English speaker, first Anglo-Saxon, uh, to hold this role. And it was heralded as a brand new dawn, a great new day, uh, the internationalization of the Vatican, the end of the, the Italian stranglehold. In the end, Cassidy lasted about a year and then was moved on and another Italian was rotated in. Uh, but, you know, contrary to F. Scott Fitzgerald, who said there are no second acts in American life, at least with Aussies there are, because Cassidy went on to become the prefect of the Council for Christian Unity and as such became a towering pioneer uh, in ecumenical relations for more than a decade. In 1999, he oversaw the signing of the Joint Declaration on Justification with the World Lutheran Federation that at the time was hailed as basically ending Protestant-era debates between Protestantism and Catholicism uh, over faith and works. It, it is to this day uh, one of the great achievements uh, of the ecumenical movement. By the way, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger played a part in that, but Cardinal Cassidy uh, was the guy who carried it across the finish line. But more than all that, those of us who knew Cardinal Edward Cassidy, I think what we would say is he was an extraordinarily kind man, uh, and he was an extraordinarily dedicated man of the church. I don't think I've met ever in my life anybody uh, who took his responsibilities as a priest, uh, as a bishop uh, and as a cardinal more seriously than Cassidy did.
Uh, he lived and breathed the Catholic Church. Uh, he gave his life to it. Uh, and as epitaphs go, it's hard to do much better than that. And we end this week with a third tragic loss uh, in recent days, but in this case, someone whose name you've probably never heard. It's Father Giuseppe Bertolas, who was pastor uh, of the Chiesa of San Martino Vescovo, St. Martin the Bishop, in the Diocese of Belluno in far northern Italy in the Dolomite Mountains uh, on the border with Austria. Uh, now his church, St. Martin the Bishop, is a well-known church uh, in the Dolomites because it sits up on a mountaintop. Uh, it's very hard to get there. Uh, it's in a small village of about 1,900 souls. Uh, and it's considered a kind of symbol of the Dolomites, kind of the heart of the Dolomites. Now, a couple of years ago, <coughs> this church uh, was struck by Storm Adrian, which moved through that part of Europe, uh, which triggered a number of landslides. It weakened the foundation of the church, made its situation precarious. Uh, current estimate is to secure the foundation of the church uh, is going to cost somewhere between one and a half, two and a half million dollars. And Bertolas was deeply worried that uh, he and the church was not going to be able to raise the money before some new storm or new, some new landslide came around and just utterly wiped it out. Uh, he died last week. Technically, the cause of death was a cerebral hemorrhage. But his parishioners are convinced that what he actually died from was worry. Uh, he had been struggling to get public authorities in Italy, to get church authorities in Italy, to get anybody uh, to kick up the money uh, it would take uh, to keep his parish church safe. He had to face the reality that this Easter he had to celebrate Holy Week outside of the church because of security concerns. Uh, and basically their theory is that this is a man who cared so much for his people and for his parish that the prospect of watching these, this centuries-old place of worship, the first mass was celebrated on this site in the ancient Roman era, watching that wiped away on his watch was simply too heavy a burden to bear. Uh, when he died, uh, the mayor was at the funeral. Virtually everyone who lives in that town was at the funeral. Uh, people came in from all over who had at one point lived there and moved on, paying testament to a priest who they believed was essentially their father, who lived and died with their suffering, their needs, their hopes and joys, their anxieties in his heart. You know what made me think of this is on Saturday, I was in my local grocery store here in Rome. I was checking out. I had a pretty full cart. Behind me, an elderly Italian lady came up. She just had a few items, so I waved her in front of me. Uh, she was grateful. We started to chat. She asked me what I did for a living. I said, uh, I'm a journalist who covers the Vatican. As soon as I said the words Vatican, uh, she was off to the races. She said, oh, you know, bunch of crooks. Uh, Pope's a nice guy, but all those cardinals are corrupt. The bishops get fat while people suffer. The Monsignors always have their hands out when they're not doing something shady. You know, the, the, the whole thing is a den of thieves. Uh, now, trying to change the subject, I said to her, 
Uh, are those some things you need for your Sunday lunch? And she said, yeah, I got to make sure everything is ready so I can get my grandkids to mass on time. Uh, you know, that's Italian psychology 101, right? Uh, they may think the system uh, is corrupt. They may have had their fill of theocracy and clerical arrogance and hypocrisy over the centuries. But the faith is still alive for them. And you know why the faith is still alive? Because of those simple priests, those simple sisters, those simple brothers, like Giuseppe Bertolis, that they see every day laying down their lives for them with no other interest in this world but them. I mean, in other words, if you want a verdict on centuries of intense Catholic culture, Italy is where you go looking for it. And you know what it is? Uh, it is people may have mixed feelings about the machine, but the people on the ground, they think are heroes, and that's because they are. Giuseppe Bertolus, Don Giuseppe, requiescat in pace. All right, that is our show for this week. We will be here again on Friday as regular, so please join us on Friday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy and happy, have a fantastic and blessed few days. We will talk to you again soon.